Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. This is Tim Staples of Catholic Answers. I'm excited to let you know that I also teach high school apologetics for homeschoolconnections.com, an online Catholic curriculum provider. There are also recorded independent learning courses at homeschoolconnections.com. Whether you take apologetics with me, literature with Joseph Pierce, or philosophy with Bill Donahue, or any of the other 400-plus courses with homeschoolconnections.com, it's a great way to get Catholic learning for your family. Welcome to the Will Within Podcast. This is your home for shared stories of hope, perseverance, will, and inspiration. Join us today as we share another story that brings to life the underlying beat of our lives. Consider us your virtual friends. Let's get inspired. Welcome to the Will Within Podcast, and I am your host, Regina Pontus. Today, very excited because we're now dropping the James Wahlberg talk. I loved speaking to this guy. What an inspiration. He had real adversity as a child, terrible addictions, thought he was going to hustle the priest, but the priest hustled him. So it was a very interesting experience that he had growing up, but... He's really turned his life around, overcame his addictions. He's now a VP of Community Engagement in Global Goodwill at Evoke. He's also the president and CEO of Wall Street Productions. And he's also dealing with the marketing and the consulting as well. And he's also the executive director of Mark Wahlberg Foundation. The guy, you can't stop him. You can't, you can't hold him back. He's also doing some wonderful movies that he's in production now. He's going to be talking about that. During the conversation, we did talk a bit about, very briefly, about his mom. And I just wanted to relay my condolences to James. He, his mother passed away uh, several weeks ago. So I want to let him know that both Alma, his mom, and the whole Wagberg clan, James and his brothers, Donnie and Mark and Paul and the rest of his family, I my thoughts and my prayers, and I will definitely say a rosary for his mom. So without any further ado, let's get into the conversation I had with James Wahlberg. James, thank you so much for doing this for me. I really enjoyed reading your book, The Big Hustle. It was very inspiring. So I was wondering if you could take an opportunity to tell me about your story, tell me about your faith base, and where you're working now, and what directions you're heading with your faith. Uh, sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for uh, for your interest in my story. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm one of nine children. I grew up in Dorchester, Massachusetts, which is part of Boston. It's a uh, working class areas, uh, some poor areas. Uh, back, obviously, in the, the early '70s, it was it was a rough and tumble area as well. So I grew up eight brothers and sisters. 
We lived in a three-family home, which is a, like a triple-decker. Boston's famous for those. So they're just three apartments on top of each other in like a square mm-hmm. box. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had three bedrooms and nine kids, two parents and a dog. And so, you know, things were a little crowded. We were, you know, we were poor for sure. And, uh, but the thing was, our neighbors were also in the same predicament. They were in the same financial status. They, you know, they didn't have anything either. And together, none of us knew what we were missing out on. So we were all happy. You know, we took care of each other. We, you know, if somebody needed a cup of sugar, some flour or some, or some cheese from, from welfare, people took care of each other and they looked out for each other and they had permission to, you know, scold each other's kids. And it it was just, it was a different time. You know, you you um, grew up in the same time I did. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you know, I live uh, 12 miles from you, but it seems like a whole generation, a whole lifetime away. I was so struck by that fact. I live in Arlington. You live in Dorchester, 12 miles difference, but it's such a world apart. Yeah. 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 Sure. It is. So, you know, um, we grew up, my dad hit a number with the local bookmaker and won enough money to make a down payment on a house, right? Mm-hmm. And so he bought us a house and we moved into a more middle-class neighborhood, um, you know, but what money he had was spent on getting the house. So we moved, you know, when we showed up, we showed up in a U-Haul truck, moving in green trash bags of clothes and, you know, broken furniture. And we didn't have much. We didn't have enough to furnish the house. We didn't have the things that our neighbors had. We didn't have a car. You know, we didn't, uh, a lot of time we didn't have a washer and dryer and we would take the bus to the laundromat. And um, so we, I think, certainly I, but I know my brothers and sisters have, have expressed similar feelings. We realized right away what we didn't have. Right. So we were keenly aware of what they had and what we didn't. And I think that has a tendency to make you, especially as a kid, maybe feel a little inferior. Right. Or a little embarrassed that I'm wearing shoes that don't fit me because three of my brothers wore them before me and they had holes in them, you know, and um, in like in the wintertime, if it snowed out, the first person out the door got boots. The last person going out the door was in sneakers with holes in them. Right. Mm -hmm. Because there wasn't enough to go around. We were on government assistance. We were on food stamps. We and so I remember going up to the corner store, which which is where we did most of our regular shopping. And then, you you know, the parents went to the supermarket once a week back then. I remember that feeling of walking into that store to go get milk and whatever else my dad needed and, and having those food stamps in my pocket. And I'd walk in and one of the kids from the neighborhood would be working behind the counter. I just couldn't do it. I was just so embarrassed and ashamed of our financial situation that I would go outside the store and just wait and wait and wait and wait until the guy who owned the store was working behind the counter. Because I wasn't worried about him or his opinion of me. Uh, I didn't know him, but I knew the kids that worked in the store. And I knew that they were they were going to think less of me or laugh at me or talk about me and my family and, you know, all this stuff. So, you know, that, that weighed heavy on me, right? That kind of a combination of that and a lack of attention at home sort of led me to the streets. Now, growing up, we were, we were raised Catholic, but 
I like to say we were raised more in a tradition than a faith. I wasn't taught about a loving God, um, but I was taught that on Sunday we go to church and that we make our first Holy Communion and that, you know, because this is what the neighbors do, right? And um, and so I was sort of, you know, I, I like to say that I was kind of robbed of, of a knowledge of a loving God. All I grew up with was God's going to get you for the things that you're doing. And, um, and so, you know, that, that feeling of shame and, and being less than and that feeling of inadequacy, you know, it caused me, I think, to act out in certain ways. And so I started to try to just take the things that I wanted that everybody else had. And I would act out in ways that would cause me to be, feel more shame and more embarrassment, right? So it was sort of this vicious cycle. And then I discovered alcohol at a very young age and it made everything, it made me feel a completely different way. It made me feel like, it gave me the feeling that I thought I was looking for. It made right? those it feelings me, go away that you had to bring out. Yeah, and it gave me courage. It gave me, um, it gave me courage. It gave me confidence to talk to girls. It gave me, it did, it did, it, no matter, it didn't matter anymore that I was wearing sneakers that didn't fit me or that I was wearing my older brother's clothes, none of that mattered anymore. I felt like a shiny new nickel. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I started to chase that feeling. You know, it started out that it was a once in a while thing, and then it was every weekend, and then it was every day. You know, and with that kind of behavior, I was acting out in other ways. I was I was stealing stuff. I was trying to, to, to fund that, to fund that new habit and to be able to obtain that and keep that new feeling that I had discovered, I was out, I would steal and rob and do whatever I had to do to get it. And I also started to find other young people, kids that were doing the same thing, that were from the same kind of difficult circumstances or their parents were divorced or their parents were alcoholics and there wasn't a lot of supervision and and so I started to hang around with them and I found my, you know, I found my, my friends, my core, my group. By the time I was 12, I had already been arrested. Whoa. I had already run away at least once or twice. I'd already been thrown out of school. Now, remember, up until the age of 12, I went to a different school every year as well. Okay. So we, I, I was being raised during the forced integration of the Boston Public Schools. Mm -hmm. And so I went to a different school every year. So it was always different, always new, always challenging, always on a bus being sent somewhere to some other neighborhood. So when I was 12 years old, I was in the seventh grade and I completed the seventh grade. And that first Friday night after the seventh grade was the beginning of the summer. And I remember I was getting ready to go out and uh, my dad reminded me as I was walking out the door. Now, don't forget, when those streetlights come on, you better be in this house. Or don't bother coming home. And I remember being with my friends and we were drinking and carrying on and, and you know, the streetlights come on in the summertime, seven o'clock. Seven o'clock, the streetlight starts flickering on and I'm thinking, I'm looking at the light and I'm looking at my friends and I'm looking at the drink in my hand and, I'm, and I start thinking, I'm not going to make it. And I didn't make it. And I didn't go home until August. That was June. And, uh, and for that entire summer, I just drank and slept at friends' houses, slept outside. I bathed at the beach or the quarries. You know, I, I went hungry sometimes and we stole and, you know, it was just craziness. 
That would have been 1977. I was well on my way to a life that was going to be very difficult. I ended up getting committed to the Department of Youth Services during that summer, which meant the state was calling the shots in terms of where I lived and where I went to school and what I did and how I did it. My parents were no longer in charge. And so I started to get sent away. I started getting sent to juvenile detention. And then after, you know, a hundred times running away from home and getting arrested, my parents were like, he can't come back here. We can't have it. It's too much of a disruption. There's eight other children here. And so I would get locked up in juvenile detention. And then instead of sending me home, they would send me to a group home for kids, or they would send me to foster care because my parents couldn't handle me. And so I spent, you know, from 12 to 17, that was my life. I, I was either homeless, living in some other person's home that I didn't really know, or I was locked up in juvenile detention. You know, when I was 17, I got arrested again for an armed robbery. And it, that was the kind of thing I did. But before I was 17, I was a juvenile and I got sent to juvenile detention for those things. I turned 17. Now I'm an adult. I get arrested yes, for that. Right. And they're talking Pretty about different. sending me to Walpole State Prison. Yeah. Wow. Which they did. Pretty tough. Yeah. And tough being all of a sudden an adult in that situation, but you're still kind of a kid. Oh, no, so, I was definitely I was definitely a kid. Yeah. So tell me, when you got there, I know you thought you wanted to start the big hustle because you didn't want to be there for, what was it, nine years or eight years that you were? Well, that was, a, I did, went to Walpole State Prison at 17, doing three to five, doing three to five years, and I did five years on it. Okay. And I did five years because, you know, my greatest fears were always what other people thought of me. I didn't have an opinion of myself. I didn't have an original thoughts. Mm -hmm. I only cared about what other people thought of me. So I behaved the way those other people thought I should behave. And I acted out in ways that they thought I should act out or the way they thought was acceptable for me to act out. So I was getting in all kinds of trouble in prison. I ended up doing most of that five years that I did in the hole. And then it came time, I got out. And I was out for six months. And that, for that six months, I was as drunk as a human being could be. I was high as a human being could be. And I got arrested again. And now I go back to prison. I'm doing six to nine years. And I start doing the math. And if I do nine years, I'm going to be over 30 when I get out. Mm. And that, that's prehistoric. And that's when I start to try to create this illusion. I start running this hustle that I'm going to, I'm going to create the illusion that I'm a sober guy now and that I'm going to you know, I'm all better and I'm gonna, you know, I, I discovered what together. my problem is. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to get it together. And, and it was all just so I could get out and, and use again. And then, um, but I, I, I garnered the attention of the Catholic priest, Father Jim Freitas at MCI Concord because I was doing those things, right? Because I was yeah. creating that illusion and, and he offered me a job in the chapel. And what he told me was, I have a job in the chapel as a custodian. And, uh, and I want to offer it to you. And I immediately started thinking, he has a phone, mm -hmm. he smokes cigarettes, mm -hmm. he has coffee, it's a quiet place. I, I, at that time, my brother Donnie and his group just came out with their first album. And so my first test to the priest was, hey, my, my brother just came out with a, his uh, cassette. Um, could you, you is there any chance you could get yeah. your hands on it and bring it yeah. so I could listen to it? Next day, he shows up with it. 
And, uh, you know, not, and so now I'm like sitting in the office, feet up on the desk, smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, talking yeah. on the phone, <laughs> doing, living the life of Riley. And, uh, and he comes to me and says, uh, you know, I need, I need the chapel cleaned on Saturday evenings for, for Sunday mass. So why don't you just come to the vigil mass and you can clean up afterwards and go back to your cell. And I said, sure, father, I never, it never connected to me that he was just trying to get me to go back to mass. And so now I'm back in mass and I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm at the foot of the cross, right. I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm hearing things, I'm feeling things. And then couple of weeks goes by and he comes to me again and says, we have a very special visitor coming to the prison. Mother Teresa is coming to this prison. And I said to him, father, wow, that's amazing. Who's Mother Teresa? Because I didn't even know who she was. And to be honest with you, I don't even think I probably knew who the president of the United States was at that time because I was just so just banged existing. up. Yeah. Yeah. I was just so banged up from, from, from the condition that I was in, you know, and, and there's an old saying, uh, I wasn't much, but I, all, I was all I thought about. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't aware of a world event. I was only worried about what was happening right here in front of me. How could I get what I wanted? How could I get what I needed? And how could I get away with stuff? And so the time came and Mother Teresa came to the prison. And I clearly knew I was in the presence of somebody special. But I didn't realize I was in the, pressure, the presence of somebody who was holy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so... I saw things that that moved me. I remember because I worked in the chapel, I was part of the procession. And as we were processing in, um, Mother Teresa was being beckoned by the cardinal to come up on the stage, which was the altar. And she refused. And instead, she stayed on the floor on her knees with all the inmates. And and that moved me and that touched me in a very special way. What and a then powerful she, example. Powerful. Yeah. And then when she was finally called up, to speak, the things that she said were things that I never heard before, and I certainly never felt before. And she told us, but more specifically, she told me, because I felt like she was speaking directly to me. She told me that I was more than the crimes that I had committed to be there, and that I was, that I was more than my prison ID number, that I was a child of God, and that Jesus Christ died for me specifically. And I heard that for the first time in my life as a 22-year-old man, I heard that. For the first time in my life, I felt that. I felt that in my heart. I felt the ice start to melt away. I felt sort of a, I felt just for a second like the world had shifted and I saw everything in HD instead of black and white for the first time in my life. And, uh, and I remember running back to Father Freitas the next day and saying, I want to learn more. I want to learn more about Jesus. I want to more, learn more about our faith. And he started to prepare me to make my confirmation, which I hadn't done up until that point. And so we prepared, and then I got transferred to another prison, and he passed me off to the priest there. Then I got transferred to another prison, and that priest passed me off to another priest. Mm-hmm. And in that third place, I was in a, in a med- minimum security prison. And I was ready to make my confirmation. I'm so glad you didn't get lost in the shuffle. What a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember calling my mom and saying, mom, I'm going to make my confirmation and I would really like you to be there. And I remember her saying, I don't know if I can come because she had already made 
uh, uh, she had already promised herself she would never visit me in prison again because it was just too much for her. It was too overwhelming. Mm -hmm. But after, you know, some convincing, she said, okay, I'll come. And she showed up. And if you were to talk to my mother right now today, all these years later, 30, 30 years later from then until now, and you said to my mother, uh, you know, do you remember when you first realized that maybe Jim was going to be different or he was changed or he was whatever it was, she'll bring you right to that moment. The moment she, when she came to my, my confirmation and when she saw me at the little, we had a little reception afterwards and she said, I just watched you. I just watched you interact with the other people that were there. You, and I, and I looked at your face and I looked in your eyes and I knew that you were different, you know, a, about mm, let's see that was that was in the summertime that was like july or august and then i got paroled in february of the next year so six months later i went to the parole board and my mother wrote a letter to the parole board and she started out the letter with just for the record i'm not the mother that lies for their children mm -hmm. i'm the mother that tells the judge to lock them up my grandma was Puppy. the same way. When you when those women yeah. talk, you know they're sincere. Yeah. So and she said, sincere. before you stands a man of God. Mm. You can go ahead and let him go now and you won't see him again. Right? He is not the man that walked into that prison system. And, um, you know, I don't know how, how much of an impact that had on them. It had a great impact on me. But you know, because I'm sure they read many letters from many moms. But what happened was the the commissioner of the parole board had my file in front of him and it was two okay. feet thick. Mm -hmm. Right. And he had his hand on it and he kind of chuckled and he said, you know what, we're going to we're going to let you go. We're going to give you a parole. Right. But we'll see you when you get back. And okay. I wasn't offended by that statement. I thought I'd probably be back too. I, I never thought that, you know, 30 years later, I would still be free from alcohol and drugs that I would be, I wouldn't find it necessary to spend any time in handcuffs or in a jail cell or homeless or, or any of those things that I would be, um, you know, that I would, that I would be a man that was trying to live a Christ, a Christ like life that I was yeah. trying to serve him. I, I never thought in a million years that any of that would happen for me, right? I didn't know that God had plans for me. I didn't know. I think know the biggest that, thing that you, yeah. I know you said before, I think the biggest thing for you was the fact that once you got out, you had the ability to, to get out of the environment you were in. So you didn't fall right back into it. Didn't you say at some point you started traveling with Johnny's band and that allowed you the ability to get away from the old neighborhood? And yeah, I don't know. Big I, things? You think I don't, it was a big yeah. thing? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I actually think, I actually think that, I mean, I, 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 I did, I broke my parole. The oh, first day I got out, I broke my parole by getting on a plane with my brother and going out on tour with him. Oh, I didn't realize right? that was part of the, the situation. Okay. I, I broke my parole on that day, right? Nobody ever knew about it. They know about it now. I think it's too late to do anything about it. So I'm not going to worry about it, but, um, but I went out on the road and the truth of the matter is, is that as much as I appreciated what my brother did for me and as much as I love 
loved and love him for wanting to bring me with him and to protect me and to be with me and to and to have his big brother back it was probably the worst thing I could have did was be out there on the road because it wasn't a healthy environment for a for a for a newly sober guy who's just getting out of prison it's not a healthy environment it's you you know being back home in your own neighborhood would have been any different well, I didn't live. I didn't. When I first got out, I didn't. I didn't live in. I didn't live in my own neighborhood. Oh, I moved. Okay. I, I lived outside of the city. Eventually, I moved back. But what drew me back was that I started. You know, I was going to. I was going to twelve-step meetings and things like that. And and I started going to places like, you know, like sober nightclubs. And I would see guys that I grew up with that were also sober. Mm. So. I didn't realize that people, A, I didn't realize people could get sober, be sober or stay sober, but I didn't realize people could have fun being sober either. And so I saw guys that I knew that were from my neighborhood that were doing really, really well. And uh, that gave me the confidence to move back to not necessarily, I didn't move to the same neighborhood, but I moved to, you know, the next town over. And then ultimately, ultimately I did move back to the to Dorchester and uh, I ultimately met my wife in Dorchester and bought my first home in Dorchester and all three of my children were born and lived their first years in Dorchester and uh, and I was able to do that as a sober man Um, and I was able to do that um, because I had lots of really good examples around me of guys that were doing that. Right. I'd, I'd never even heard of a 12 step program before I went to prison. Never heard of it. Never heard of it all through my teen years and my early 20s. Never heard of it. Never even considered it as an option. I didn't even really know that substances were my problem. Right. Or were a symptom of my problem. Right. I everybody I knew drank and used drugs like mm-hmm. I did. They just mm-hmm. didn't get in the trouble I got in. You know, I couldn't figure that out. And so. How much stronger uh, was faith for you once you started getting out and following the 12 step did you really get involved no so i so i made my confirmation i i got out of prison i got out and i got out smack dab in the middle of the biggest crisis the catholic church has ever oh, seen oh yeah with cardinal law yeah yeah and so and so cardinal law was actually the cardinal at yeah, in the prison Teresa. with mother yeah. Teresa when i was there yep. and uh and so i got out and it was a combination of that was going on. And then I had all these people telling me that I could create my own conception of God, right? That I didn't need to, to, to belong to a religion or, or, a, you know, or a faith that I could just, I could just create my own conception of God, right? Which is a dangerous thing, which is a very dangerous thing for me, Correct. right? I don't think, I don't think it's okay for me. I won't speak for anybody else. It's not okay for me a broken person, a sinner, to try to create my own conception of God. I'm not capable of creating my own conception of God because I don't need to create my own conception of God because there is a God, the one true God, right? And and I'm fortunate enough to already be raised and confirmed in that faith, right? I didn't need to go. I didn't need to go outside of that. I didn't need... But I used it. I had permission because I didn't want to I didn't want to confess my sins. I didn't want to 
go to church. I didn't want anything to do with the church. I thought, I thought when I thought of the church, I thought negative thoughts. And then, you know, I'm, but I'm still not drinking, not using drugs, not getting arrested, working hard. You know, I'm, I'm working on the outside, trying to make everybody think I'm doing great. And, but I was unhappy. I was unhappy. I didn't know what joy was. You know, excuse me. What were you doing at that point? Like work-wise? Work-wise, uh, I was. I started to work in the addiction treatment field. So I was working mm-hmm. in an entry-level position in a dual diagnosis detox in uh, in the middle of Boston Harbor. And, uh, and, 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 and that job saved my life. Mm. You know, that job gave me a purpose, right? It made me feel like I had a purpose. I That's had a very, I had a special way with the clients because, and they were coming from the most difficult of circles. Many of them were homeless and had mental health problems, but I, I felt comfortable. I felt more comfortable around them than I felt around the staff. I continued to do that, but I continued to be unhappy. And uh, my wife told me we we're moving to Florida, which it was just like that. She said, we're, we're getting out of here. We're not living here anymore. She was unhappy there. She was unhappy. She was she had seasonal affective disorder. Every winter she would get depressed. And, uh, and she just was tired of living uh, a Wahlberg life in, in Boston, you know, like people would just come and knock on my door. Right. And so we moved to Florida. We, we started we started anew. But I, you know, I brought my unhappiness with me. And I and I had this emptiness inside of me that that, you know, I just. Only God could fill that emptiness. I tried to fill it with everything else. And, you know, I was here for a few years and I was unhappy. And my wife sort of had a reversion and and went back to the church in a major way and, and was really uh, on fire. And um, instead of ordering me back to church, she just was kinder and more gentle and more forgiving and more patient, which was, uh, was attractive to me. Right. And then she started nudging me. Maybe you should go on one of these men's retreats. And I was like, no, no, I'm good. And then my daughter came to me and she was 12 years old. And she said, daddy, I want you to go on the retreat. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to be happy. And she crushed me. Mm-hmm. It was like she ripped the mask off my face because mm-hmm. I thought I had everybody fooled. I thought everybody thought I was happy. I was the life of the party. And uh, and so I, I went to that, have that inner peace, right? Yeah, I went on that retreat and and I and I got crushed. I got crushed by by the Lord. I got knocked to my knees, and uh, and my heart just melted. How old? Yeah. Oh, that was late thirties. That was only like that was only that was only like fifteen years ago. Wow. Not even twelve twelve years ago. I've been in Florida twenty years, so I had been here eight years by that point, and I got knocked to my knees, and Jesus melted my heart and. And he made everything clear to me that, that, that the only way I was going to have joy and the only way I was going to feel peace in my heart was through him. And, uh, and so I, um, I grabbed onto that. And I had had experiences before, like my mother, Teresa, experience where I, it was almost like a white light experience. It was very mm-hmm. powerful. Mm-hmm. But I learned from that experience that if I don't do the work to maintain that relationship with Jesus, that I'm not going to be, I'm not going to feel the way I feel. 
I'm not going to feel his presence. I'm not going to feel the fullness of my heart. I'm going to feel empty and lonely and sad again. And so I, I was beaten into a state of reasonableness. What, what I mean by that is, is I, was, I was made willing to do the work. I was made willing to, to, to be a servant. I was made willing to, to surrender myself. Right? I can because see I was that by what you're doing right now, too, as an animated director. It's like you're focusing now on doing speaking and on talking, obviously talking about the book, but you're for the children movie, or your brief, you yeah. go around talking to young kids now doing that as well. So it is yeah. another element of your calling for that. It's powerful. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it, it's, we, I, find, I find that you know, the only way for me to feel full and to feel joy in my heart is by serving God. So if, if what I try to do is I just try to say yes. When I'm called to serve, I just say yes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I get called in different ways and in different times and in different places, and God uses me the way he sees fit. And all I got to do is say yes and show up. That's all I got to do. Well, the rest of it will be just fine. I, I've learned to trust that. And, you know, I've, I've sort of branched out a little bit and, um, and I recently found myself, uh, I was asked to join the board of, of an organization called Materphilius, which was started in Mexico. And Materphilius is a program to help pregnant women who find themselves in very difficult circumstances. And, uh, and it helps them by providing them with a home to live in and parenting classes and job training and things of that nature. And, and so I've been blessed to be involved in the opening of a Metaphilius house here in Florida. And, uh, and we're expecting our first baby um, today, wow. as a matter of fact. Wow. And yeah, and so it's, you know, it's very exciting and beautiful. And it's, it's so awesome to just see you're contributing How to God's a new life. Plans. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, how God's plans for me have just continued to be revealed, and I just and I just get to see it and witness it, and and to, and to just all I gotta do is say yes. Yes. That's all exactly. I gotta do. I just say That's yes, it. and I just keep moving forward, and I keep trying to be of service to Him and to His and to His people. And for that, I get to live this fantastic life of joy. Yep. Can you tell me about for the children? Because I. When I watched it, I found it so powerful. And then afterwards, I realized you had said that the the young girl who was terrific, that during the few scenes that she was in with this woman who was supposed to be her mother was her actual mother. How yeah, so the film is actually called What About the Kids? Oh, what About the Kids? I'm sorry. Yeah, and you can see that uh, if you go to whataboutthekidsfilm.com, you can see that film for free. Um, but yeah, the, the, the eight-year-old girl... Layla Scalise, she, you know, she, her, her character, she loses her mom to an overdose. And, uh, and her dad is also an active addiction and her, and her grandparents take custody of her, her dad's parents. But in the film that we have a couple of flashback scenes and of course the scene where mom is overdosed and the woman who plays her mother is actually her, really her mother. she never acted before. Wow. But she was there and I was like, you know, this could be really great because you know you guys look so much alike and you know, you don't have to do it, you don't have no lines, you don't have to do anything, you just have to, you know, lay there in the bed or push her on this on a swing. 
And, uh, and she was like, yeah, I'm, a, I'm not an actress, but I'll do it if you want me to do it. And it was beautiful. And it was, it was, uh, it was, it was perfect. It was definitely by his design. Yeah, that is such a big dimension to the whole thing. Yeah. So moving. So what are you doing now in terms of the uh, directing? Because I know you're so, doing other stuff as well. Yeah, so we're we're writing now. We're uh, we're writing two scripts right now. One is it's a faith-based film, and it, it's really geared towards men mm. and looking at their crosses and looking at the things that pull them away from 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 Jesus. And that one, the plan is to have people like Christophonic and and maybe like Matt Mayer or whoever, just very well-known Catholic, high-profile Catholic people be in the film to sort of bring more attention to sort of the plight of men. I mean, you go to mass now and first of all, the mass is, even before COVID, right? The masses were, I mean, I'm blessed down here in South Florida, our churches are kind of full, but in Massachusetts and up north, pretty empty. And most of the people sitting in the seats are women, mm-hmm. right? So the men are missing. The men are missing from the church. The men are missing from the families. The men are missing from the home. And um, and so we want to make this film to address that and to look at that and to and to and to look at and expose the light to the things that are pulling men away from their faith and away from their homes. And so uh, we're doing that. And then we're also doing one that is not a faith-based film, but it's a true story. And it's about the, the founders of the Purdue Farmer um, pharmaceutical company, the creators of Oxycontin, the creators of this opioid epidemic that we're living through right now. So both of those films are, are in pre-production. They're both uh, scripts are still being worked on. But I mean, I suspect that we'll be shooting the Purdue Farmer film probably before the summertime. Well, I'm looking forward to your next venture. I want, before we, because I know we have some time here, only a few minutes left. I want to read to you something that when I was reading your book, I thought of. Sister Faustina, okay. that was Diary 1577. It says, tell souls not to place within their own heart obstacles to my mercy, which so greatly wants to be active within them. My mercy works in all of those hearts which open their doors to it. Both the sinner and the righteous person have the need of my mercy conversion as well as perseverance. And this is my mercy. And you are the, you are the person that signifies perseverance and working through all the hardships. And you, I can tell, have God's mercy within you. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. It's very kind of you to say. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. If you want to give the connections that you'd like people to contact you or or your Twitter handles, your website. Um, yeah, they can. Uh, folks can go to uh, jimwalberg.com, which is my my brand new website. Yeah. And uh, and or at in at Instagram, it's at jimbo w thirty six. And I don't know what the rest of them are. I'm, I don't really say. You're a big them, social but, social media user. Go to the website. Go, I, Find I mean, everything. I do it, but I go to go to the website. It's all there, and, and we can engage in a conversation there too. Yeah, I think everybody should get the big hustle. I think that was an excellent book. Thanks again for participating. I really do appreciate. Okay, it. Okay, thank you.
I just want to take the time to thank James for talking to us. What a profound story. Imagine being 12 and, and being in that kind of environment, going in and out of jail, etc., and thinking you're going to hustle one guy and the priest ends up hustling you. So thanks for sharing that, James. I really do appreciate all the endeavors you've been working on since then, trying to bring people closer to Christ. I think that's a wonderful thing, trying to help people get sober and live the best life that they can. So thanks again to everybody for listening. I really appreciate all the feedback. It's been a wonderful opportunity to listen to everybody. And I'm more than happy to talk to people if they want to actually come on the show. You can always reach me at willwithinpodcast at gmail.com if you'd like to do that. And until next week, my Will Within family, be blessed. <laughs>